You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Audible. If you're listening to this show, I can assume maybe two things about you. You like to listen to stuff and you also like books. Why not combine these two passions through the power of the audiobook? Audible has over 180,000 of said audiobooks, many by people who've appeared on this show. And best of all, our listeners can get a 30-day free trial by going to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. 30 days to check out over 180,000 audiobooks. Thank you, Audible. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am calling in from our West Coast branch in my mother's backyard to talk to my old friends, Max Linsky of Long Form and Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. Hello. Hello, Aaron Lammer. Hey there, Aaron. This week on the show, um, I think we've been accused occasionally of a a New York-centric bias. So uh, I've been taking advantage of my days over here on the West Coast. I uh, hopped in my mother's little red Prius, and I went and talked in San Francisco to Mache Saglowski. Do, you, do you, you guys know Mache's work? Of course. Yes. Among people who are not affiliated with any publisher and are writing on their own blog, I don't know if anyone has appeared on long form more than Mache. Um, he writes about the tech industry, but from a very personal and uh, humanities-based perspective, I guess one could I say. I think that's right, that that no like independent writer has been on long form more than him. We, we've posted a bunch of like transcriptions of talks that he's given at conferences, too. Like uh, even, even when he gives a speech, it's worth a post. He does these, you really have to see them to believe them, but he'll post a talk he gave at a conference, and it's basically just a series of like, Paragraph, image, paragraph, image. And I've never seen someone who gets more mileage out of that format. <laughs> so entertaining. I'm glad you got to do this one, man. It was a long time coming. Um, I just signed up for a new MailChimp newsletter list, and I was very glad because previously I've been in the position of having to like wrangle the HTML for an email newsletter, which is pretty much the worst thing you can possibly have to do, especially if people are reading it on their phones. And I realized... Nowadays, MailChimp just takes care of that. They get all the templates. It works everywhere, whether someone's reading it on Android or wherever. They've got you covered. Thank you, MailChimp. They've got us covered, too. Thanks, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Maciej Siglowski. Tell us who you are. My name is Maciej Siglowski. I'm a computer person and a writer uh, and a former painter. I live in San Francisco. I run a bookmarking website called Pinboard, and I also run a small bedbug-based online empire. Are you still actively maintaining the bedbug registry? And no, I'm very passively maintaining it, but I make half my living from it. So I need really? to, yeah, I need to go back and, and, and kind of do some heavy work on it. And that's from like referral traffic to bedbug related products? No, it's from the kind of targeted advertising that I make the other half of my living railing against. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a hedged a hedged bet. What do you do as your 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 main job? What do you do with most of your day? So my main job is running uh, Pinboard, which is this bookmarking site that uh, is kind of the spiritual successor to a site called Delicious that still exists in a strange form but originally was one of the first web 2.0 types of uh, sites where people collaboratively submitted things and then discovered that that made for an interesting social dynamic as well. When you picked up 
with Pinboard, which got this big rush of people after Delicious imploded. Did you foresee, like, I'm going to make my life from this? Like, I'm just going to take take this group of incoming people and I'm going to keep working with them for many years? Not at all. I, I, I started the site, well, a year before there was any hint that something was going to go wrong with Delicious. So I thought that in the best case, I could siphon off some users that were particularly incensed with the things that had bothered me or that were very, very privacy conscious. And so that I might over the years have something that would give me uh, not enough to live off of, but some yep. kind of steady income to supplement contracting and things. Mm-hmm. So I, I set my sites fairly low. And a big part of why I made the site public in the first place was just to encourage me to do some work on it so I wouldn't I wouldn't half finish it. And yeah. I, and I ended up three quarters finishing it. So that was a big success. You're able to juggle sort of multiple pretty high-level projects like this. Was that something you learned through working on Pinboard, or did you have a string of projects before that that you were able to make money and sort of put your energy into on an independent basis like that? Um, I think self-promotion and laziness are the key to juggling high-profile projects <laughs> where you start on something, you make a lot of noise about it, and then yeah. it fizzles and you move on to the next great idea. Yeah. So I see that more as a flaw than as a as as a bonus. The things I worked on before Pinboard were uniformly failures, whether it was for paying clients or for myself. Uh-huh. And this just happened to be a lucky swing. You know, I, I hit a baseball in the dark okay. uh, on this one. For people who haven't read your blogs, um, they're heavily focused on the technologic industries, although in a way that is either usually undercutting or exposing parts of them. Um, and often I think your writing is adapted from talks you've given or stuff like that. So like what kicked you to write in the first place? Like what was your first urge to write on the internet? I wish I could remember it. I've been keeping a weblog since 2002 uh, called Idle Words, which for a very long time was just, it started as a pure online diary, like, you know, kids did back in the day and turned into a series of travel articles and food articles. Uh, And sometimes I would write about tech when I got mad enough about something. Mm -hmm. Uh, The urge to write act developed more than it came from somewhere. As I did more of these, I I, I got a taste for it. I got some attention, which always encourages people to to try to write more. So as I got a little bit of success with my writing, I wanted to do it more, do a better job of it. And especially with technical topics, try to present a a reasoned case for some of the things I believed in. People have accused me of, especially uh, in Twitter and formats like that, of just being uniformly critical. You know, I don't like anything, but I actually have, in thinking about this, I realized I have a more positive vision of what technology can do in people's lives. And so I tried to challenge myself, especially in giving talks, uh, to present that in addition to the scary stuff, which which I think sometimes leaves people feeling apathetic and helpless. Mm. Not really the mood you want to set in a talk. So... I'm assuming then that you got into programming before you got into writing. So what what led you into programming as a field? Desperation uh, led me into programming. I was a double major in college between Russian and studio art. I always wanted to be an artist, but going to uh, I went to Middlebury, which going to there for an art degree makes no sense. It's a really expensive liberal arts college. So I also wanted to study something where I would get value for my student loans. I liked Russian literature. I liked the language. And so I came out with this kind of uh, doubly useless diploma, uh, made a real go at being an oil painter for several years, made uh, tiny amounts of money on the side translating, and tried to sell my work online. And through that, I learned HTML. I remember writing uh, my entire website by hand, just cutting and pasting 130 almost identical pages. And then at some point, a local, I lived in Vermont, then in a local web design place was trying to find anybody nearby who could do web things. And they hired me to building little websites for small businesses and taught me how to connect stuff to a database. And this sort of latent skill I had as a programmer that I'd suppressed after high school so that I wouldn't turn into a big computer nerd blossomed again. And uh, just in time to miss the entire first dot-com bubble. Uh, This was around like right after the crash when I started getting serious about programming. At what point in your programming life did you kind of say like, wow, I could like do something for myself rather than just as like a hourly gig kind of a thing? I wouldn't present it as, as a, as positively as that. It was more of an experience of, I, I don't have any more jobs I can't get any gigs. I was living with my girlfriend in Romania. She was in the Peace Corps, and I was trying to get remote contract work. 
like what on earth could I do to possibly make some money? That's like an inverted scam. Like you're an American living in Romania looking for legitimate programming work. I got locked out of every one of my online accounts. <laughs> First the banks and then you know yeah. even my DNS provider. I had to talk to the CEO through Twitter before they realized that I wasn't a bot. So at, at this point, you started running Idle Words. This is kind of we're crossing over in, in time now to, to starting to write, I would think, like getting early computer jobs and, and sort of starting to put your own writing online. I started putting the writing online when I still had regular work. I worked in academic computing for several years as uh, kind of a bridge to, to contracting and, and full-on tech work. And at that point, I started blogging fairly regularly. And when I would go on trips, I would write about them. So that I think writing predates any sort of serious programming by five or six years. Oh, interesting. How do you feel like having taken these these three skills, oil painting, programming, and uh, the written word, like what are, what is the development like differing on these? Are they each kind of things that you put in a certain amount of work and you jump a threshold? Or I mean, you're the rare person I know who does more than one thing at a high level. So I'm curious what those learning curves are like. Well, I can't talk about programming at a high level because I'm a I'm a really bad programmer, uh, and I think uh, I, I think I'm just good en- a good enough programmer to recognize the talent in other people and admire people who actually do it well. As far as oil painting goes, that was a, a lifelong dream, and one thing I liked about it the most is that it's a non-intellectual activity. You can you can study a lot about it and and, and our history and so forth. But when you're actually doing it, I, I would imagine it's like playing a sport well or or anything else where it's your conscious brain is still around, but it's just kind of uselessly commenting on what's happening and you shunt it aside. I, I enjoyed that very much as someone who tends to climb into his head a lot. I don't find that at all in, in pursuits like programming um, that are very technical. Like instead, you're, it reinforces this tendency to be too much in your head and in your house. As far as writing goes, I don't have the experience of being at a high level. Uh, I, sometimes I look at something that I've read a long time ago, and I, I laugh at it, and I think that's a good job. I'm glad I was the one who did that because I would be envious if someone else did it. But usually my writing process is that I stop when I'm so sick of it, I want to delete it. So, And it takes a very long time to get back from that threshold of, of nausea with your own work. I push back slightly at the idea that you're a terrible programmer, not that I've read any code you've yeah, written. I've some code to show you if you doubt. But I think that that the tech industry in Silicon Valley often feels like it's immune to criticism and immune to journalism because the sort of knee-jerk response is usually, well, you don't really understand this. You don't get it. You know, you might be worried about privacy, but you really don't get it. And regardless of the quality of your code, I think what's very compelling about a lot of the things you've produced is you can't quite so simply say, you don't get it. I think you kind of get it more than most writers. You might be the best, like uh, they talk in the NBA about, you know, people who can play offense and defense. You might not be the best programmer, but you are probably the highest overlap between programming and writing of anyone I've come across. God help us all. (laughs) So, so I'm curious about like how that perspective informs what you write. I mean, has your experience working within technology been influential on what, what you write about? Absolutely. I actually credit, uh, unusually, I credit the fact that I studied Russian literature and history a lot in this, this skepticism I have towards technology, because one of the things that you study with the, the golden age and then the silver age of, of Russian literature, especially the second half of the 19th century, is this sort of messianic belief in science and how science was going to transform society. A lot of people were under the impression that we were just discovering through Darwinism and and, and, and you know, through the, the rapid progress in technology, these laws that governed uh, the way people would behave and that if smart people made the right choices and, and designed things correctly, it would lead to happiness for everybody. And we saw that it worked out terribly. It actually led to, to, to horrible things. And so this, this pattern in kind of self-assuredness, uh, a sort of elitism, a sort of secretiveness about your goals, and the combination of, of, of really, really intelligent people believing what were fundamentally religious fairy tales about the powers of progress. 
are very familiar to me from that context. And so when I see them again among my peers, you know, it's a real easy, slow-pitched softball for me to, to swing at. And I noticed that it's just a, a, I happen to have studied that, so I happen to have noticed that. And I, and I feel like I know enough about programming to be able to call bullshit on it without being intimidated by people who are much smarter than I am, but who, whose activities I feel I fundamentally understand. I don't think there's something they're doing that's beyond my theoretical grasp. And so I feel very comfortable uh, kind of pointing loudly at, at them and accusing them of, of doing stuff that's socially harmful, at least just to try to, to, to get the argument made. What happens when you compare uh, the activities of a venture capitalist to a uh, 18th century Russian aristocrat? I assume that I'm not going to get through to the people who are doing the the actual programming of society. But my whole point is that they shouldn't be the ones who make this decision and who, who get to make these choices. There's a lot of us around who are also have uh, have a choice to make. So I, I really want to try to get through to that audience. But you speak at a lot of conferences. So I assume when you speak at a conference, you're getting kind of a mixed audience of people who are very sympathetic to your views and people who, who are maybe more utopian technologist idealists. I guess I imagine there being someone who is who's in that audience who's maybe younger and who is choosing between how to view their skills and what they can do for society. And, and I guess I, I would wonder what you would sort of tell someone like that, a 22-year-old a version of yourself who wanted to pursue programming but also was aware of some of the darker elements. That's a great question because I sometimes feel like I'm speaking to a younger version of myself. I'm susceptible to all these arguments, which yeah. is one of the reasons I'm vehement about them. Me too. I'm uh, very susceptible. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes a while in your life to realize that you're susceptible to this stuff. Someone online called it epistemological learned helplessness, which I think is a beautiful idea that I'm really easily persuaded by clever arguments. Me too. But knowing that I don't trust myself, you know, with like, especially with newfound beliefs or really old set beliefs, only like middle term beliefs are safe. So. I think I thought of myself as the kind of person who would be like um, a great, like blustery, uh, talking out of both sides of my mouth kind of startup person. And then I like kind of gave a shot to some of this tech stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm that's not really who <laughs> that's not really who I am at all. Um, but I think you do have to sort of push someone and, and a lot of your writing, I think, takes the form of you will make the sort of puppet argument and then you will respond to it. Um, you have to be pretty well grounded in, in the myths in order to, to, to sort of decode them. So I, I just listened in the car. This is extremely poor driving since I was listening to the video, <laughs> but I just wanted the audio. And so I had to play the video while I was in the car um, of a talk you gave, I believe in Dusseldorf. I, I think it was maybe one or two years ago. It was kind of right when um, the uh, information leak of the government spying stuff was really heavily in the news. Um, and you, you link it to all of these different historical passages. Um, you link it to um, a database in um, Poland of um, suspected homosexuals that was kept by the secret police. You, you're able to orient it around a lot of pretty wide history. So I, I'm interested when you take on a topic like that, do you do research? What, what's your process like? It's, it's a chaotic process, but I, I do a lot of reading and I try to, and I write things down and I end up with a folder full of little text documents. And then I, when there's enough of that, I kind of try to stitch it together and then I notice where there are gaps and I, and I look deeper into it. So I have a, a, you know, my mind is just like an old dusty cobweb where there's things stuck in it that have been there for a long time. And sometimes when I give a talk, I try to pick out pieces that I've never used before and see if I can, uh, find an interesting metaphor there. My mom is, is, is obsessed with metaphors and I make fun of her for her crazy metaphors, but I think I've kind of inherited or, or learned from her too. What is someone who's obsessed with metaphors like? You know, they set things up for five minutes when they're yeah. trying to describe something to you. and, and, and the, Your mother is, is Polish? Yeah, she's Polish. Is, uh, is the metaphor heavy in, in, Pol in Polish? No, no, it's, it's not like Irish storytelling okay. or something. No, no. She's, These are self-invented metaphors. Yeah, she's really just, uh, she's a tour de force. People really remember stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, your job is just to try to make it an intellectually honest one. Or if it's intellectually dishonest, to make it easily enough, you know, like a little puzzle so people will see that, that it's, what you said is actually bullshit, but maybe it leads to some Well, I think that that's actually a a pretty good way to describe a lot of your work, which is you're taking topics that easily you could write a whole book about. You could easily write a whole book about information privacy in America, but you're, you're boiling them down to 
these sort of bite-sized, often metaphorical, often slide-based, still humorous, but covering some pretty deep territory. I mean, when you start putting together one of these talks, are you thinking, how can I make this visual? How can I make this metaphorical? Like a lot of these, a lot of the ideas, if you just write them out, are a little like, like blunt and argumentative, but the way that you unpack them is often pretty elliptical and entertaining. Do you start with the ideas or do you start with the metaphors? I start with the title of the talk ah. and then, uh, I, then I panic. Then it's like three weeks before the talk and, I'm like, and I have to fill 50 minutes and that's when the work begins. Uh, so you'll submit a talk blind with a title without having yes, written people, it. Yes, because the way this the system works is, well, first you get invited because you showed up once and you were on time and the audience laughed. So you, you cross this basic threshold for giving talks right. and you enter this world that there are multiple tiers of. So I'm on the low tier where you know I still, sometimes I get paid, sometimes I don't. I'm, I'm not at the TED talk level yet. And, or whatever, God forbid, lies beyond it. So yeah, they they ask you, okay, what are you going to talk about and give us an abstract and a bio? So you have to produce 200 words. And then I see that as kind of a holding action where I come up with a clever title and something that sounds minimally like something I might talk about. And then I do panic-based research uh, closer in time to when the talk is given to try to flesh it out. But there's a couple of advantages I have giving tech talks. One is that your audience is really smart. People who attend tech conferences are... You know, they work in the field, they have big brains, uh, and they can they can do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. So I think as long as you're not being a total bullshitter and have found some intriguing parallels, it's not necessary to completely understand or explore them. It's, it's fine enough to call them out, especially when they're towards sort of esoteric stuff or towards historical parallels that, um, that people might not be aware of, but can easily research. I really dislike Malcolm Gladwell's approach, for example, where he kind of baseball bats his three points into the ground. And, yes. And I like the opposite of that, where there's, I try to have enough material that even people who completely disagree with my take on things at least have something to wake up halfway through the talk and, and, and think, you know, it wasn't an utter waste of my time. I saw you give a talk in um, Portland at XOXO that was heavily about Thoreau. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting, but I feel like you, you sort of were willing to undercut some of the more um, affirmational feelings about the Thoreau with like certain um, facts about his life that like, he didn't really like live in the woods quite the way he had portrayed right. it. And he actually had like women bringing him food all the time. Yeah, yeah. His, I think his mom actually made his bed. Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like a weird, like in, infantilized mm -hmm. version of, of being a hermit. Yeah. He was like that 12 year old that pitches a tent in the backyard and then it's like, mom. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're willing kind of to, to take stuff, whether it, totally fits with your thesis or not. You're not really looking to prove a thesis in these talks so much as explore it. My, my real goal, and this ties back to something you asked me earlier, is I want people who, who are young and impressed by this idea of the power they wield as, as programmers in a yep. tech-heavy society to realize that there is a debate and that there, there are alternate points of view about some of the things that... that maybe heretofore they've taken for granted. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I, I used to be a real big believer in scary artificial intelligence taking over the world. And I remember how effective it was for me to find out that there were people who were smart and who understood the terms of debate who fundamentally disagreed with it. The same thing happened with nanotechnology. I was super into Eric Drexler's vision of nanobots that were going to take over the world if we didn't act now. And the, you know, there's a lot of superhero elements to these stories that we have to like take action and yeah. be brave or disaster will occur. Yes. And then I heard some people speaking very persuasively about why basic rules of biology and chemistry meant that this scenario was far-fetched. I didn't credit it at the time, but it laid a seed that, you know, I guess aptly then ate out my brain and, 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 and hatched into this skepticism about nanotech and about AI. So I want to just try to, to play the same role for people who might be on the fence or not realize that there is a fence. That's kind of the worst case. Well, I don't even think of you entirely as um, a skeptic. I think of you as someone who, who brings a um, pretty heavily ethical focus to a field that is not deeply concerned with ethics uh, on the surface. Where do you set your own ethical and moral compass with this kind of writing because a lot of what i sort of hear or as a counter argument when it, when people criticize these industries is kind of like well it's all going to happen anyway right. so who cares right it's almost like 
studying this is a waste of time because there's this historical inevitability about technology. Um, so I'm wondering when you when you're putting together one of these talks and all you have is the title, which doesn't sort of <laughs> give you much of an ethical compass. Uh-huh. Like how do you how do you set where you stand on something like privacy or any of these topics? How do you how do you build out an ethical framework? I come from a, a part of the world in a country that was dominated for. 50 years by people who believed in historical inevitability. Uh, and in our case, it was Marxists, people who believed in uh, that because the government's aims were good, they could steamroll over any objections over people's individual rights. You know, the, the, all of the excesses of, of communism, which in Poland weren't nearly as bad as in other places, uh, were still very bad and really corrosive. They created a, a three generations of cynics like me. So <laughs> that's, that's the price you pay. And I, I think... I have a deep suspicion of authority. Uh, that's my basic ethical starting point for everything. People, nobody can handle power. Uh, nobody can handle wealth in a way that, that remains ethical. It's just, and, and so all of the successes we've had um, in countries like the U.S. is in figuring out ways to, to, to prevent too many people from having too much wealth and power for, for too long and it's worked pretty well. I'm, I, for all my cynicism or, or skepticism, I think you know I'm, I'm a big believer in America, and I, I think that those values are in danger uh, because of the way technology has changed the balance of power between powerful people and the government and and the rest of us. So I think making an argument that tries to preserve this vision of the internet as something that empowers the common person and not just centralizes more power in other people's hands. That's a point of departure that's proven fruitful because you can basically give the same talk every year and just the circumstances change so much that it becomes different because different elements of it are stressed. But the the basic power dynamic remains the same. Were you born in Poland? Yes, I was born in Poland. I came over uh, by accident when I was six years old. Uh, My mom and I were tourists and we got stuck here. What was the precipitating event that stranded you? The agreement was my mom was taking care of someone's newborn baby for six months in exchange for just being able to see America with her six-year-old son. And this was in 1981. December 13th, 1981, there was a coup. Uh, the, the scary sunglasses-wearing general in Poland took over and shut the borders briefly and kind of scared everybody into thinking there was going to be a huge crackdown. Your mother just said, I'm just going to stay. For the first few days, we couldn't leave. Uh, there was no way to go. Um, Reagan decided to give every Polish citizen in the country at the time uh, a green card, so we had the option of staying. And then it just became a series of extensions. You know, I would be—I started school, so I wanted to finish the school year. My mother uh, had some dental work done, and that took a few months. So there are always reasons to extend our stay by three or six months. My father would write saying, "You know, there's no hurry for you to come back because the situation is really unstable." There's also no hurry to come back because he shacked up with some other woman. So he had his he had his personal reasons for delaying us. But until I was about 12 or 13 years old, I thought every year I was just about to go back to Poland. So I never really um, considered myself American uh, until maybe next year. Did you speak English when you showed up? I didn't speak English when I came over, but I learned really fast. I was six years old, so that, that's yeah. the best time to learn a language. And I, I became kind of an interpreter for my mother who took a lot longer to learn. Um, it was very stressful. I didn't. I was too young to understand our immigration status, so I just felt precarious, like we were about to get thrown out of the country at any point. We also moved around a lot, so I, I, I you know, I had this outside observer feeling that I've never quite shaken about about America. Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a brief word from our sponsor, Casper. Casper is a different kind of mattress company, a mattress company that wants to give you a great mattress right to your door without the hassle. It uh, arrives, you have up to 100 days to sleep on it. You haven't paid a dime for that delivery and you won't pay a dime to have it returned if you don't like it, but I think you are gonna like it because it's an obsessively engineered mattress that has latex foam and memory foam, gives you just the right sink and bounce, and the price point is excellent. 500 for a twin size mattress and 950 or king size mattress. If you've shopped for a mattress recently, you know those prices are great. So I want you to go to casper.com slash long form. As a listener of the show, you'll get an extra 50 bucks off that mattress. And once you're hanging out in your bed on this great new mattress, maybe surf on over to longform.org. That's our website. We've got up the long form guide to sleep. Some of our favorite articles about sleep presented by Casper. Thank you, Casper. Our next sponsor is MIT Press. 
Discarding the old notions of fly-on-the-wall immediacy or quasi-scientific aspirations to objectivity, critics now understand documentary not as the neutral picturing of reality, but as a way of coming to terms with reality through images and narrative. The MIT Press has recently published a new book, Documentary Across Disciplines, which collects writing by artists, filmmakers, art historians, poets, literary critics, anthropologists, theorists, and others to investigate this vital area of cultural practice. Their investigations take many forms, essays, personal memoirs, interviews, poetry. So I want you to head over to mitpress.com slash longform to read more about Documentary Across Disciplines and check out their other new releases, uh, Felt Time, The Psychology of How We Perceive Time, and a new book from Noam Chomsky and Robert Berwick, Why Only Us? Language and Evolution. Again, that's mitpress.com slash longform. When you pick up Documentary Across Disciplines or any other book, you're helping to support the show. Thanks, MIT Press. I'm curious, as someone who who is um, piecing together a living with um, a little bookmarking, a little bed bugging, what's the role of writing? I mean, what... How can you justify the time you put into writing? I, I'm assuming that you don't make a lot of money off of your writing per se. I've made, I think, $200 off of my writing uh, in, in the last 12 years. The thing about writing is I feel I'm, I'm good at it. And so yeah. I, wanted, I want to do it. I, I can do things that I'm medium at. And I, I certainly like programming because it helps me live independently. Uh, it's fun, intellectually challenging. But I think I'm actually good at writing. So I want to do that more and try to see if I can take it further, um, which means writing longer things, you know, maybe book length. I don't know if you've had this experience, but working in a tech career, it's easy to go from project to project and work on things that are intellectually stimulating and fun, but that never actually have any impact on the world. And it's kind of amazing because, I don't know, if you're an architect, at least like the shitty mall you design, you can go like, hey, I designed that yeah. mall in technology. It's often almost uh, immediately paved over. It, as soon yeah, as you're especially done with it. and especially for really clever and talented people because they tend to work on far out projects that you know collapse just like most things in our industry do. Before Pinboard, I know I, everything I worked on has disappeared uh, except for for Pinboard because it was done within it was replaced by other code or it was done inside companies and that project got axed. So, and I know a lot of people who are in this situation. I think anybody in tech knows people or has had the experience themselves. You work on cool stuff that never sees the light of day. And when you look over a longer term, you know, that that's pretty depressing that, you know, you had a lot of fun, but what did you actually do that you can point to? To me, writing serves, uh, serves that purpose really well. And it's also a way to, to pay better attention and to remember things that I otherwise would have totally forgotten. Both Pinboard and Idle Words, which is your blog, which everyone should go check out, they feel like long-term projects. With Pinboard, you've one of the things that you've really emphasized in your messaging, and I, I recommend anyone who wants to um, get any bookmarks uh, saved, go save them. But a large part of sort of what you're selling to people is, I'm not going to write a weird self-indulgent letter in three months about how it was a great ride, but I wanted to work on new projects. Right. Which or is, at least it'll be funny. You know? Yes, yeah. you'll either get, you'll at least you either get a really yeah. good sunsetting letter, or you won't get a sunsetting letter, and that's unusual. Very few startups. A big part of what they're selling is I will not go away. Mm -hmm. Why is that stuff important to you? I talk about running a personal archive like I do. It's almost like running a small country bank. You really have to project permanence. And you, know, mm -hmm. you build yourself a stone building. And you, uh, people care about the things they bookmark. And they want part of caring about them is not wanting to lose them. In that area, my just natural contrarianness makes me like to, to see if I can do something long-term in an industry where everything either changes until it's unrecognizable or gets sold or collapses or something happens to it. I like the idea of uh, something on the web being persistent and, and more basically, I just reject this idea that everything has to be on a really short time scale just because it involves technology. Like we've had these computers around for a while now. It's time that we start treating them like everything else in our lives where, you know, it kind of lives on the same time scale as we do and doesn't completely fall off the end of the world every every three or four years well it's interesting how writing also has a bit of that like writing online also has a bit of that quality you know when i when i went back and looked at your site and read through your archives you did this very amusing piece about uh, a burrito tunnel mm -hmm. of a, a, a historical historical fiction regarding a, a tunnel for the sending of burritos and 
I'm assuming it like made the rounds and was kind of, and you know, I could show it to someone and they'd be like, oh, ha, ha, okay, whatever, great, you know. But then when I take the whole project, like when I span back mm-hmm. the decade, it feels immense. And you don't get that experience very often um, as a reader online because things are fractured. You know, it's, oh, he published that in The New Yorker, but it's not online anymore. You can't find it all mm-hmm. in one place. It's almost like you have to start over again. And, and I feel like when I read your stuff, you're building on a, a, the same momentum. You don't you don't have to start at point A each mm-hmm. time, especially with a lot of the stuff you've done in the last five years with um, the content of some of these talks. They really feel like they're um, building an ethical and, and a uh, intellectual framework for looking at the technological industry that builds on itself rather than having to wipe itself each time. Do you think of your writing that way? I hadn't thought of my writing that way. I definitely thought of my talks that way mm-hmm. because I was trying to challenge myself. I started realizing that I was re- repeating certain certain points and I try not to repeat exactly the same argument but I was I was trying to figure out how I could frame it in a more uh, more comprehensive way like what do I actually believe about the internet and how it should work yes. and not just like why I think the way it's working is bad so the talks I, I've I've recognized that and I think I hope that adds some value to it that if you read multiple ones of these you start to see that there's there's a coherent idea I'm not sure what it is, so I, you know, God help the readers, but I, I hope that I start to understand it better. Um, I have an interesting experience sometimes when I, I write drafts for my blog and, and I'm kind of tired of writing the draft, I'll paste it into the template. And then suddenly it starts to suck. And I realize, oh, okay, because you know the things that I've published have, have been more polished than this, this piece of writing has been. So there's something about wrapping it, putting the fish on top of it. And incidentally, I'm, I'm finally changing the fish after, uh, oh, no. after 12 years. Yes, yes. I mean, that was actually one of the things I was going to say, which is it, it's, it's almost bold to not change things for uh-huh. so long. And it, has, it brings in a feeling. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it brings a different feeling when you're like, this guy has his first post from 2004 on here, and if I click back far enough, I'll get mm-hmm. there. That's a different feeling and a different kind of confidence as mm-hmm. a writer, and it forces you to think differently. I mean, mm-hmm. I assume for that reason, uh, you don't want to put up a blockbuster piece about some new uh, social network because mm-hmm. that might not even last long enough to yeah, sort of justify yeah. and there's lots of stuff on my blog that, that I used to post in the past that was very ephemeral or yeah. talked about controversies that I don't even remember, let alone care about anymore. So that certainly the older it gets, the more I have a feeling that I need to pay attention to things like write, write about things that I care about, not just in the moment. Uh, it's easy to start sounding pretentious though talking about all this stuff but i want to i want to beat the drum for self-publishing as something that's changed my life you know i just wrote this shit for no good reason but a lot of good things came of it there's a view that's being sold right now and and i say sold because i think it's there's people who have an economic interest in it that that in the future there's going to be no professional writers it's just everyone's going to have their own medium posts up and it's all just going to be kind of a bunch of skilled amateurs in a way. And certainly the software is there or has been there for many years to support self-publishing. But I don't actually read that many like really interesting voices. When I, when I go on Medium or I go on these platforms that are for self-publishing, what you generally find is a lot of self-promotion and you find a lot of articles that are almost written within an aesthetic template. Mm-hmm. The launching my company template, the lessons I learned from blank. There are these sort of uh, cliches about how to mix your professional, personal, and writing life. And I don't see a lot of people who are skeptics or people who have contrarian views embracing it. And in many ways, feels like uh, the opposite. And it's something that I guess I experienced maybe a decade ago going to film festivals also where the digital camera was supposed to be, Oh my God, right, anyone right. can make a movie. You know, people are just going to get together with their friends and make the Godfather. And then you go to a film festival and you're like, Ooh, not, not so much. Like I'm interested in how it feels as someone who's been self publishing for a long time to, to sort of uh, experience this wave of, you know, every startup, every technology, everyone's got a blog now. I mean, yeah. it's, it's almost considered a um, professional, you have to do it. How do you feel like you fit into that world? Well, I feel like the hype came early on. You yeah. know, I started in 2002. That's when blogging was really becoming a thing. And, and this is a much more skeptical wave. And, and, and 
Because if you remember in like around 2002 or whenever it was, there was real conviction that everybody was going to have their own website. Yes. They kind of framed it like really in an intimidating way. Like you had to update your site constantly, you know, keep it fresh or people would stop coming. So it was like everybody is forced to grow a garden. This GeoCity site sucks. I'm not hiring this guy. Exactly. No, it was like if everybody had to grow a garden that was yeah. for show, right? And right. like, and people were going to drive by and check out your garden. Yeah. Uh, you might only get one visitor a week, but you had to like yeah. put all the work. There was a real Puritan aspect to this blogging thing. That I think it burned people out. I wanted to say the the, the people who inspire me as bloggers are are, are actually like scientists, uh-huh. scientists, mathematicians. Like they do amazing stuff. I'm always fascinated with things that I barely understand, and I love going to physics blogs and reading you know, what working physicists have to, like when the gravitational waves were detected last month, yep. you know, there was an immediate sort of flurry of takes and they're really good at writing explanatory posts, uh, uh, handling questions in the comments. It's it's inspiring because these people's output before the internet would have been a series of very dry papers. Or if you were lucky, you got to meet them in person and get drunk and hear their stories. But the stories are now more accessible. When you stop thinking about it as like self-absorbed writers like me and think about people in, in fields of expertise who are able to have this additional channel, I find that like as a really positive and underrated aspect of of what blogging can do. And I'm thinking also of like Peter White, who writes a blog called Not Even Wrong. He's been a string theory skeptic and curmudgeon for many years now and has been he eventually published a book, but it came out of that blog and this whole idea that I as a layperson can read and kind of understand the arguments for and against this being a non-scientific enterprise. I, I think that's wonderful. I wonder if your job is, you know, you got to get better at writing, like mm-hmm. we're, we're counting on you, then you do that. F- for you, who who I put in that sort of very strange world of the most skilled amateur I've ever, you know, come across, like I'm interested in like how you press yourself to keep getting better and to, to improve what you do. Do you work with an editor ever or? I'm actually going to work with an editor on this Antarctic material. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you know a blogger named Mimi Smarty Pants. She's a, a Chicago blogger who uh, has been around forever and ever and is one of my writing heroes. And I actually got to meet her through her blog and we became friends. She, in her real identity, she's, uh, she works as an editor and she's agreed to help edit this stuff. So this will be my first time actually working with someone and someone who's a far better writer than me. So I'm very, very excited about that. So how did this Antarctica project come about? People who like to travel, everybody wants to go to the Antarctic because you get the bonus continent. There's stuff down there, penguins, like it's not hard to, to sell it. But I knew I, I wanted, I had been to uh, Tierra del Fuego and I remember seeing these enormous cruise ships in harbor that were waiting to go to the Antarctic Peninsula. And I knew I didn't want, I wanted to see like big ice and old crazy huts and I didn't want to do it in the company of 900 people, which is what they were, what had been turning into. So I found, years ago, I found this expedition that sailed into the Ross Sea and it was a month long and you kind of, you know, you, you saw the real deal and it cost a fortune, something like $30,000. So this summer I kind of finally got fed up and I thought if I don't do this now, I'm just going to put it off indefinitely. And I made the reservation and had the inspired thought that maybe I could get somebody else to pay for it. So I went back and forth a lot about putting it on Kickstarter because I'd never done writing for anything except my own enjoyment. And I worried that if yeah. I, if I actually had people pay me to do it, I wouldn't want, you know, it would, it would kill like the, my one hobby. Right. And people reacted very positively to it. Uh, so far, I mean, they reacted positively and gave a lot of money. We'll yeah. see how they react as they continue not to get any output from me. <laughs> so like well, five weeks after the I mean, what, what was it? You know, you were worried about it killing the joy. Uh-huh. Did it kill the joy? No, it's it's. it was a very lucky trip. A lot of stuff happened that uh, that's just super fun and easy to write about. Uh, it's just intimidating because it's a larger scale project. The Antarctica is riddled with cliches, you know, cliches like icebergs. You got to navigate between them uh, or your writing just starts to suck like, like so much that has been written about that area. And everything requires a shitload of research. So that's what, it, what are you intending to focus on when you write about? Something that I, I really realized on this trip was that I hate all of the heroic age exploration stuff. I'm sick to death of it, it turned out. <laughs> I saw one hut too many or something. And and what fascinates me about the Antarctic, apart from natural splendor, yeah. uh, which is, like everybody's ever said, is, is incredible, is the lies we tell ourselves uh, and have told ourselves historically to, to get there. I mean, the whole foundation of, this is the one part of the earth that is not 
hospitable to people at all. And so you have to tell yourself all kinds of lies to make it worth building bases in, make it worth visiting, make it worth fantasizing about. And that process of telling ourselves and each other lies is fascinating to me. I'm trying to find ways to, to make it more concrete and articulate it better. There's something about, about that, that that is really fun to chew on. When I hear a lot about a perspective piece you have or looking back on some of these pieces, it, it seems like you start with an idea like that. Like I can imagine you writing that on a note card and mm-hmm. being like, all right, I got to like figure out how to turn that into a thing. So I'm curious when you start with an idea like that and you want to develop that idea, how do you interrogate an idea like that? It's such a poetic idea in a way that you can't say, hey, is this true that like we are always trying to find a new place to convince ourselves that it's cool to colonize or whatever like the ethics and morality at play in a lot of your work i feel like is very sharply articulated in a way that i have trouble believing you can just sort of freestyle out imagine you you're on a ship you're going to a part of the world that is really really beautiful but is so overwhelmingly beautiful that it's that it actually makes your job harder to try to describe it you're going somewhere where people have written with clichés for 300 years about yeah. you know transcendent splendor you're on a ship where the median age is 63 years old, so I'm the third youngest passenger. Uh, there's a Russian crew that is uh, is being terribly economically exploited uh, for this type of tourism, and that is homesick as hell, and that is also bored. So you uh, you get to talk to them in English, Russian? No, no, in Russian. I was yeah, yeah. You speak Russian. I speak Russian. I mean, I, that that Russian major. This is the one time I yeah. really used it. <laughs> So I'm, I'm kind of, I have, and, and I, I'm at my best when I have my f- one foot in both worlds. So here I am, you know, I'm uh, kind of being adopted by the crew and at the same time seeing things that are so amazing that it's, it's difficult to describe them well. And I'm with a bunch of, I'm basically in a floating rest home. So th- this pulls me in many different directions and I try to write about them in my, to, for my own self. And when you're writing, you have a feeling of when you're kind of, you know, when you're doing good stuff and when it fizzles out. So I, I fizzle out in different directions and eventually you stitch that together into a Frankenstein monster of, of hopefully the seams don't show too much. And then, um, then people start to ask you is like, how you created that? And that's a satisfying question. So in the case of a lot of your work on, on tech, I mean, I think skeptic is a, is a fair word to put it. Um, maybe a, a, uh, complex skeptic, not a simplistic skeptic, but still a skeptic. I think the first reaction a lot of people have to to skepticism is, well, like, what's so fucking good about you? You know, Mm -hmm. it it almost encourages people to take a uh, broad argument and and return a personal attack. Mm -hmm. Um, And you you addressed briefly that you earned part of your living from um, ads on the bread budget registry, which I can see would be a good a good way to target you if I was going after you. I'm (laughs) shocked that nobody's done it yet. So like. Let's talk about that. I mean, does it put you up to this sort of higher standard as a skeptic? I feel like um, certainly this world is not above personal attacks, not that necessarily you're such a threat that people are like out trying to undermine you. But I'm curious about how that feels for you when when you're when you as a skeptic, do people sort of make the argument personal against you coming back? It's it's not like that. It's actually I don't know if you've read this article. I think it was on Gawker. It was about snark versus smarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought it was a beautiful framing of yeah. these kind of two forces. And I think I'm not so worried about personal attacks, but yeah. I think people are dismissive of criticism. Yes. And there is a definite cultural uh, push towards authenticity, earnestness, and then people who cut that down are cheap. You know, yeah, it's, it's easy. Really, it's really easy to it's be It's easy to criticize, much, eh? which, by the way, it is not. <laughs> like, let's see you do it. And so a lot of it, what the, the, the criticism that, I mean, the, the, the reaction I get that is, is difficult to deal with is this, you know, we're making things, you yeah. just, it's easy to, to, you know, sneer at everything. Yeah. What are, you know, what have you done lately? Plus just this, uh, this relentless positivity that we, you know, will will respond by doing and not even engage or your critique as far as my like personal involvement i find that the whole bedbug side intriguing because you know i give talks about how dangerous these invasive tracking technologies are and then i run google ads on the bedbug site which yeah. use these dangerous invasive tracking technologies but this is actually what led me to think of of my proposal to encourage dumb ads again i had read a lot of railing about online advertising how corrosive it is to privacy which i agree with but people's take seemed to be that we need to do micro payments we need to not have advertising supported stuff which didn't seem like it was possible and then i realized that on 
the bed bug site that I run, I really, all this tracking was completely useless. All I needed to have were, were dumb ads that were targeted towards the, con at the content of the page. Yeah. The only thing I needed to know to run good ads on that site uh, was roughly where the user was, what city they were in. Right. Did you have a personal bed bug experience? Yes, I did. Oh, okay, me too. Objectively, it wasn't bad, but you know that psychologically, this stuff just That's what I, I horrible. Feel, I sometimes feel like bed bugs are a great, like, psych, would be a great psychological experiment to play on someone because Maybe they're not they that are. bad. As I mean, I've mm -hmm. had worse bugs mm -hmm. before. The, the bed bugs didn't even bite me. I only saw like two of them, mm -hmm. and I completely changed my entire life as a result <laughs> of seeing two bed bugs. So, just as a, a to confirm that feeling, <laughs> like in South America, they have a type of. It's not a bed bug, but it's, it has a similar lifestyle, except yeah. that in addition to biting you, it also, it will shit on your face in the wound that it made. It will leave a little fecal pellet. And if you scratch that wound, which itches and scratch the fecal pellet into your blood, you will get heart disease. Whoa. So, yeah. That's it's a called, much worse, worse bed bug. Yeah. Yeah. So this is another typical Americans have it so good. You know, our yeah. bed bugs just make us itch, but they don't give us heart disease. I, but I, you did have bed bugs. I, I stayed in a motel here in San Francisco when I first moved here. On it's still around. I think it's the Travel Lodge on, on Market in Valencia, and I got eaten alive. I thought it was a tick, and I, you know, went online, complained to my friends that there's ticks in my hotel room, and started this long psychological journey of being worried that I had carried them with me. But kind of as a form of therapy, and to 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 keep keep me up at night instead of sleeping, I, I thought I'd do a little website. It was one of those ideas, maybe you've had them too, when you realize that someone's going to do it if you don't, and then yes. you'd be annoyed that they had come up with it. So <laughs> so having done a f a f some pretty well-received projects and also having engaged in a pretty serious pro-am writing career, <laughs> wh what do you want to do now? Well, I definitely want to keep writing. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited about the Antarctic material, and I hope that that is well received and i hope that i can write at longer length at yeah. greater length and more cohesively and if that works i have some other ideas i want to i want to pursue um, i'm also very serious about you know I, I joke about it all the time but i'm really apprehensive about the direction that our highly technological society is taking and the effects that it has on our freedom uh, i find the, the current war against cryptography to be very alarming like Constitutionally, I'm, I'm someone who worries and is pessimistic about the direction the world is taking. But I think also in this case, it might be taking, going in, in a bad direction. So I'm really interested in figuring out if there's a way beyond just giving talks and making dumb jokes on Twitter that I could help push back against this tendency. I, I've, I've been dreaming for a long time that there would be some jurisdiction somewhere that would pass really stringent and good privacy laws. Just like uh, Swiss banks used to advertise themselves as, you know, you pay a premium for keeping money with us, but we have all these, you know, privacy laws. Uh, I'd like an equivalent of that for um, for the online world, where mm -hmm. you could have a like if if I hosted my site in Holland or, or or Denmark somewhere, I would be guaranteed that, you know, that all these abuses that we see taking place would be illegal there, and then maybe people would have a chance to vote with their wallet and show that they 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 care about this stuff. And there's a political aspect too now that you know we're seeing at least one of our uh, political parties in the U.S. Uh, pick one of two terrifying candidates when it comes to personal freedom. And uh, my own country in Poland, they, we've just elected a horrible right-wing government that's kind of gutting the constitution. So these are you know, these are real concerns that are going to play out in the next few years. And the the tools that that we've given potentially bad actors in the form of surveillance, the form of computing power to do massive surveillance have never been used to their full capacity. And I worry that someone is finally going to do that. When you think about sort of jumping out of Twitter, like taking this off Twitter and into somewhere bigger, like I know that there is a following of people who read what you write and, and agree with you very strongly. Is there any way to unify those people or to, to treat them as a block in any way? I mean, it's not an insignificant number of people, but they're not necessarily uh, linked to a political party or a geographical region. I mean, this is sort of the weird thing about the internet is it clearly has a politics, mm -hmm. but that politics is not one that has a, a Democrat, you know, we, we don't vote on the internet yeah. ever, and we don't even really vote on representatives who give a shit about mm -hmm. the internet. How, where do you see change pop being possible there? In a world where people are all using these high-tech devices and, and these websites, it should be a political question of how it's regulated. And the problem is that in, in America, you run quickly into the problem that our democracy doesn't work for all sorts of things. You know, 
water policy, like it, any education, anything you name, it's kind of like we're broken. If uh, we can't regulate guns, we're unlikely to be able to regulate the right. internet. Regulating guns seems to wrap. Yeah, Pretty simple. Other countries have figured it out. Yeah, it's, you know, you can explain the gun issue really, really simply, and yet somehow we can't, we can't get any, anything to move on that. And we're kind of a left-leaning country with this political system that encourages, uh, you know, smaller, more rural states to dominate. So this paralysis is, is like, the Internet is not going to be the breakthrough issue that fixes American right. democracy. Right. So that's where my hope is maybe in some... Uh, better governed countries might take the lead. But really what, what it comes down to is trying to find a framing that makes people invested in the issue as it's not a tech issue. It's a how we live our lives issue. And tech just happens to, you know, it, it's where it came out of, but it, it's, it's become broader. It affects us as a society. And we, as a society, should have the right to make some decisions about it. When you see other countries, I know that in certain countries in Europe have sort of pra- um, passed these um, privacy laws where you basically have the right to remove yourself, uh, remove things from your Google history. Do you find that exciting or is that do you feel like that's kind of a misstep? Um, I think it's compounding the problem there's there's two specific issues there. One is that in, in the European Union, there's a problem with with these kind of elitism and these uh, elites uh, that create laws for the broad masses. If you see the kind of people that Europeans elect to the European Parliament, they they elect their worst right-wing parties, partly out of protests that they feel like Brussels is taking a heavy hand in regulation. So when you have judges uh, ad hoc deciding like what it means to forget someone online, I, I think it plays to the worst tendency of that sort of elite control of, of government that people, people bristle about in Europe. But the more flawed thing about it is that these laws are designed to protect individuals and they're out of date. Like the, what we face is the problem of mass surveillance and retrospective, you know, collecting everything and looking at it uh, only when you want to, of finding broad patterns, all these things that were just not possible in the past. And things that are not maybe individual privacy violations, but become so when you have information on an entire uh, population or, or, or subpopulation, who they called, who they spoke to, those aren't well protected by laws that were designed to, per, per, you know, to, to defend individual people against these sorts of abuses. And so trying to apply those laws muddies the waters, I think, as to what we're really up against. Is part of the problem just that none of the people who have sort of reached that elite status politically have the knowledge of technology? I mean, I can't think of a single... Uh, elected official in America who see, who I can think of as oh that's the internet that guy really knows the internet and we right. haven't even the way that Silicon Valley is sort of uh, dreaming mm-hmm. that the next political class will be made up of startup CEOs mm-hmm. that hasn't happened yet I mean I I don't know who the most knowledgeable American politician is on it and I assume in Europe it's probably worse I would agree with you and if you look at something like the the Feinstein Burr uh, bill that just got put out is to regulate cryptography I mean it's it's horrifying in a lot of ways but one of it is it's it's basic technological illiteracy right like traditionally politicians re- relied on expert staff to explain this stuff to them and help them decide uh, what position to take but for whatever reason that's that's not working at all with with the internet and on the other hand, I feel like people who are who work in technology and understand the technology very well don't understand the politics. Yeah. Politicians, for all their faults, are familiar with how power works and how uh, you know it's collected and dissipated. And we have these shockingly naive people who are creating tools that are enormously uh, beneficial to people with power who can't see the consequences. I include myself in that group where I, I don't feel like I have a sophisticated understanding of what a mass surveillance society can do. I don't really want to have that understanding because I think it would be a painful lesson. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I think you you do really eloquently in, in that talk in Dusseldorf is sort of show how um, the best intentions can lead to... Like, there's this idea that, oh, Facebook, like, if they have good intentions, it's okay. Mm-hmm. We only have to worry if they're actually really nefarious. Mm-hmm. But that in most political situations, like the the secret police in Poland, these aren't like, oh, everyone in the society was nefarious. It, it's how people, you know, it's generally human archetypes. You, you bring up the idea of a, a Snowden within one of these com- companies where mm-hmm. you only need like one leaker to, to change world history. And that's that vulnerability is everywhere. I mean, that's in any data set needs one person mm-hmm. to transmit that data set. Yeah. And, and nobody wakes up in the morning thinking like, man, I'm such an asshole. I can't wait to go out there and like, be an evil asshole 
everybody has good intentions yeah. and has some sort of an idea of why what they're doing is, is beneficial. That's what makes it so, so dangerous. You know, people, people who are overtly evil are much easier to, uh, to confront than people who genuinely think they're doing good to the world and, and, and end up making it worse. All right, my final question, which is, you've managed to make both of these projects work over a period of years. Um, I know a lot of people who listen to this show want to get a project of their own. Go, what what advice do you have for someone on running a project in the long term and, and thinking in the way that you described of uh, a more human lifespan-based um, projects, be they technological, journalistic? One of the things I liked... Uh... I liked in college was one of my professors telling me that she felt everybody had a hundred bad essays in them. I think that's a very good description that anybody who's interested in writing, this is a good, uh, yeah, you got to get that out of your system and maybe, and some people have 10,000 bad essays inside them. So you never get, you never get past that, but there's definitely truth to that, that, uh, I encourage anybody to go back to my early writing. It's really quite bad. So, uh, if you like my stuff now, you, you can see that it was a lot worse before. And I think, yeah, take advantage of the fact that there's a world worldwide audience for uh, for your shit and just put it up there. Maybe you can do like a uh, hundred bad essays registry where people can <laughs> upload and it just auto deletes everything. Uh huh. So your badge hits a hundred. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Maciej Sugalski. Or I probably screwed that up horribly, but thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me. And um, where can people um, where can people find your writing and where can people find Pinboard? Pinboard is at, at pinboard.in. Uh, my writing is at idlewords.com and yeah and you can find me and, and, and the lawyers at Travelodge can find me uh, here on Bernal Hill in San Francisco thanks thank you hey that was the long form podcast thanks very much to Mache for hosting me thanks to Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky they are my co-hosts thanks to Jenna Weiss Berman our editor our intern Courtney Harrell, our sponsors, Audible, MIT Press, and Casper. Go to Longform and check out that Longform Guide to Sleep presented by Casper. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.